Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful day you have given us today. Thank you for the songs we have heard today, all for your glory. And everything to you, do, you do is for your glory, God. And the beautiful singing that we found out that you can move mountains, you can calm seas, you can heal the sick. God, your power is endless. And we want you to know that we thank you for everything you do for us in our lives. And for the people that need help on a daily basis in this room, we'd like you to show their power and challenge you that you can help them out, that if they rely and have the faith in you, Lord. Lord, we'd also like you to speak through Brother Tom today, that his words may come through you and that you may be the inspiration and people may be enlightened and know that we are here to live for you. And our days may be numbered, Lord, but in everything we do, we should be doing for you and for your honor and glory. In all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's always a big honor to be asked to speak to the teens, for me at least. It's humbling, and uh, it's like spiritual adrenaline there's so much youth and vigor. Great program. Moved me. And I thank you for that. I had a lot of you praying for me because nothing good happens without the Lord showing up. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked at it and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And thou, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the men of Judea, Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I have looked at it, that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now, go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. It's an interesting passage. It talks about the Lord having an amazing setup. An amazing setup. Perfect land, Perfect preparation, perfect fertilization, everything just right. And unfortunately, with all that preparation, with all those good things in place, wild grapes, inappropriate fruit, unusable, not going to produce good wine, wasted potential. 
wasted potential. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command clouds that they rain no rain. Everybody in this room is hungry for glory. Some more than others. I'm victim to it. So are you. It is humanity, our inner humanity that drives us to want to see glory, to experience glory, to have glory. Now we could make the easy argument that, you know, those of you that are seeking fame and fortune and great things for yourself, well, that's, that's self-glorification, and that's not what God wants. That's inappropriate fruit, useless fruit, fruit that God can't use. And yet, I propose to you that there's a lot of us that, that even if we're Christians, or we're, we're not Christians yet, but we're good-minded, there's often times where we're seeking out glory and glorious things that are really our own doing and our own desire. It's inappropriate fruit. Unusable. And the result? We're not just going to make low-grade grape juice out of it or use it for some jam. No. The land is laid waste if the fruit is of your doing or your desire or inappropriate fruit of some way or some kind. Sorry. God doesn't appreciate inappropriate fruit. He wants the best fruit. Glorious fruit. Fruit by his design. Come and sit down, Kelly. I'm going to tell you a story. You know me. I do that kind of thing. The year is 1090 A.D. The world is a thousand years past the coming of Christ. By now, the Roman Empire has, has embraced Christianity, unfortunately, in a way that is producing inappropriate fruit. The Roman Empire has deemed everyone within its empire a Christian, like it or not, or in some cases, you were killed. There's a young man living in the Roman Empire, north end of Italy. A teenager, just like you guys. Lives across the street from a mighty Roman Catholic cathedral. And he, like many of you, he's impressed by that cathedral. He likes looking at the priests coming and going in their long, elaborate robes and their interesting hats. And he says to himself, ah, you know, I'm just a kid, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to bring glory to the God that lives in that house. 
And I don't have these fancy robes. I'm not a priest, but, but I can do something. So he set about to write some glorious music. He did the best he could. And he knew that when they heard it, they were going to say, this, this is glorious music. So he spent his time, spent his energy, every free moment in between chores and duties and work that he had to do, and he wrote and he labored, and he wrote this song. And after months of working on it, he wrote the final draft as clear as he could on parchment. He walked up to the priest. And he said, I have something for the Lord. And the priest grasped it in his hand, looked at it, and nodded, we'll have a look at this. A few days went by, and he went looking, and after a few weeks went by hearing nothing, he found the priest again. The priest said, yes, it was interesting, and I really, it's really not my, uh, that's not my area. You have to talk to someone else. And he looked and talked and found it, and ultimately, there was no glory. He was dismissed. William was a man that appreciated the finer things. He appreciated the arts. So he said, you know what? The music thing, maybe I'm really not that good at music. Maybe I didn't spend enough time. I'm going to do something bigger, better, more glorious. I'm going to spend my money and buy a canvas, a large canvas, and I'm going to paint an epic picture. So for the next few years, he spent what money he had, got the supplies he had, and started working on this epic picture. He decided he was going to create a painting that depicted the creation of the world. It started at one end with simply a black sea. And it would fade as it went across the painting into the division of sun and sky. At the end, you'd see the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And it would be absolutely beautiful because he would spare no expense on paint. He would spare no time. He would take what it took to make this thing an amazing masterpiece for the ages. Three years of laboring, hard work, starting, restarting, finishing half of it, painting it all over, starting again, because it had to be something truly glorious. After three years, he made a presentation to the church, the cathedral across the street, and he was excited. Got some of the people there together, the bishops and priests, and and made a big deal, and he was very excited to present it to them as a gift for the glory of God and the church. And they unveiled the painting. And it was beautiful. And they all nodded their heads that it was quite a good work for really an amateur. He was excited to see just where in the cathedral this picture would be hung. A few days went by. A few weeks went by. And he again entered into the place and said, you know, I was just wondering if you had chosen an appropriate location for my painting. 
I said, well, you know, we, we have it in the back room and we really haven't decided. We don't see any other works we can take down at this point in time that are, that are uh, you know, of, of more relevant artists than you, but, but we like it and, and we'll just see what happens. Months went by and he did not see the glory. Well, by now, it's about the year 1096. And about 400 years before, you see, the problem was in the world stage that Jerusalem had been part of the Roman Empire, as you know, during the time of Christ. But, but the Muslims had taken over Jerusalem, and it was really a Muslim-controlled city now for hundreds of years. But the problem happened when in the late 900s, the Turkish Muslims decided to go into Jerusalem and ransack it, take from it, all the ancient relics, and destroy everything that had to do with Christianity. And this, my friends, was the impetus for the start of the Crusades. The Pope, Urban II at the time, made a very public decree throughout all the Roman Empire, said, this will not stand. Jerusalem has long been inhabited by Muslims, Pagans, non-Christians, and there are Christians living in there, God-fearing Christians, but this city is overtaken, and now it's been decimated, destroyed, overrun. We Christians are going to rise up, and hence the Crusades were born. And the first Crusade was, was so, I guess, well-plotted by those in, in the lead and, and uh, a number of people, including the Pope, that even regular civilians, all kinds of people, men and women, gathered together so that they had a horde of tens of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire that were going to march to Jerusalem and take that city over, return it to the Christians, take it away from the pagans. This was going to be an all-glorious undertaking. No matter how much blood had to be shed, this was going to bring glory to God. So they thought. Well, let's talk about William. You know, William has had a couple of false starts here. He's been looking for an opportunity to get into his mouth that flavor, that delectable flavor of glory. Hasn't found it yet. Spent years achieving and hasn't yet been able to taste that satisfactory feeling across his tongue of true glory, God's glory. So as a young man, he said, you know, I'm going to get engaged in this thing. I'm going to find a way to participate. But he said, I'm not just going to go on and, and carry stuff or whatever. I want to find a role that's truly meaningful, truly can bring God the glory. So he found a way to become a standard bearer. A standard bearer someone, as you may well know, is someone that carries the official insignia, the, the placard or the flag of your army, of your people. And so he became one of the standard bearers of this first crusade in the year 1096. It took them years and many battles to fight their way because they had to fight their way as they sometimes had to ransack cities just because they needed supplies. Killed people, kill, were killed themselves. Thousands were killed 
just in getting to Jerusalem. In one particular battle, he was at the forefront, holding the banner, bearing the standard. And there was no one across this big field. This was a couple of cities north of Jerusalem yet. And yet, all of a sudden, a band of soldiers came from the side, led by horsemen. And these horsemen were coming right towards them. Even though arrows were flying, spears were flying, they were bearing down on who? None other but William the Standard Because he was standing with the symbol of Christians. The Christian symbol making offensive making an offensive towards Jerusalem. And these Turks came in, and the first thing that happened is the first horseman just ran right over him. Ran right over him. The standard went flying. That's what the horseman wanted. William fell to the ground, hit his head. By the time he awoke, felt his bloodied head, looked around. The army is largely leaving. The battle was over. He was still relatively in one piece. His standard was gone, beaten into the earth, into the mud by hooves of horses. And once again, glory was ripped from his hands. And by now, he was starting to get a little ticked off. By now, he's starting to get a little angry. And his, his hunger, his appetite for glory was was elevating every single day as they continued the march to Jerusalem. Closer and closer they got to the city. Many crusades following never even got that far, never even reached Jerusalem. But this first crusade, it reached Jerusalem. And he had in his heart a hunger, an, an insatiable hunger for the glory of the Lord. And so after a few days of of surrounding that city and beating at the doors with various instruments, they finally found a way to break down the doors of that walled city and they started marching into that city and he marched along with them. He was no warrior, but he was excited because they had a powerful mass of humanity busting down the gates, walking through the city and doing what needed to be done. And he watched soldiers fall. He watched the blood of Muslims being spilt. And he said to him, I need to participate because the Pope said, with every Muslim that dies, I'm guaranteed into heaven and I'm going to seek out my glory in this place today. And so he went over to the sword of a fallen soldier, lifted it up. It was bloodstained already. And he knew what needed to be done. So with a small phalanx of soldiers, he walked through the city, went down to one alley, and found a place where the door was barred. He saw a soldier there break down a door, another one there break down a door, and he heard screams of people. And so he heaved up his foot, and he kicked in that door. And he walked through the door of that home, and he said, Glory be to God! And he saw a father and a mother hovering in the corner, a young woman and smaller children. He walked up to the father with his with his sword, he said, Glory be to God! And he took off his head! 
And the woman was cowering and sniveling. And he looked at the woman as the children and the young woman scampered away. And he took the butt of his sword and he crushed her forehead. And she fell to the ground, blood frothing from her mouth, dead. And the children had escaped through the back somehow. And he walked through the house. He just ransacked. He said, I will find glory in this place. I will find it if it kills me. And he ruined the home. And as he walked out the door that he had kicked in, he looked just beside the door. And he saw a nail and a small piece of rough twine and a hand-hewn cross three inches tall. He was looking for infidels and he just slaughtered two Christians, and he fell to his knees, and he vomited. And he did not feel yet the glory that he so craved. And he left his sword, and he walked through the streets, scampering, wondering what to do. Kill more? Do what? I don't know what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden, he got into this area a few days later, and he He saw just blood everywhere and death everywhere. He said, this is a horrible place. This is a horrible place. And he thought, I have to get out of here. There is no glory in this place. None at all. And he turned to leave. And from the corner of the the courtyard that he was in came a rider, a Muslim warrior. And this Muslim warrior had a tool in his hand. It's called a war hammer. This is somewhat to size. It's a little bit too big. But the real key of the Warhammer is it's about, in many cases, six feet long. And the head on one side is a hammer, and the other side is a large, long spike. Very relevant tool for a man on horseback. So this Muslim horseback rider was running towards this man in Roman garb. He didn't look like a military man, but he had the Roman colors because there was no helmet. He was just a standard bearer. And he swung, much like a polo player would do, a full arm swing. And the hammer hit him right in the abdomen. And the spike drove up through his abdomen, deep, deep into his body. And he fell to the ground, impaled by the hammer. And the handle of the war hammer hit him in the face. He lay in the dust, bleeding. And he blacked out. He doesn't know how much time passed. But he woke up to the sensation of being dragged from the courtyard and dragged into a dark little room. And he felt someone pull the war hammer, deeply embedded into his body, up under his ribs, very close to his heart. He felt someone pulling the war hammer out of his abdomen. And he could feel the warmth of the blood trickling down the sides of his body. And as his eyes adjusted to the darkness of the room, he felt the cool cloth wiping his face. And when he looked over, he saw a young woman 
with a cross hanging from her neck. And she recognized who he was. But her humanity required her to ease the wounds of this lost soldier. The daughter of the people he had so cruelly destroyed. You are that man. You are William the Crusader. Working for your own glory. Desiring to satisfy your own lust. Stepping on the mercy. Ignoring the blood that was shed on your behalf. And the one that you offended is the one the warm hammer, Satan's war hammer from your body. Let's concede, continue on with Isaiah 15, 5, 11 through 13. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, and that continue until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp and the vial and the tavern and the pipe and the wine in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore my people are gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Isn't it interesting that at the start of verse 11, we find these people that are looking for their own glory, that rise early in the morning, that drink wine, and in the end of 13, we find out they're famished, and they are dried up with thirst. When we seek our own, when we seek our own glory, or even when we seek the glory of God in the guise of doing something good for God, but it's really for us, the fruit is inappropriate and unusable. And the satisfaction you seek is absent. So what is the glory that some of you are seeking? Worldly comfort? Thrills? Yeah. Satisfaction and illicit drugs? Ooh, that really gets you far, doesn't it? Or maybe you're searching out for a spouse in the world or a girlfriend just to use or a boyfriend just to, just to play with for your own glorification. Or maybe you're a Christian and you say, I'm going to go to the missions because I'm so good. And people will say, whoa, you're an awesome Christian. If you're going to the missions to bring yourself glory, woe unto you, inappropriate fruit. If you're coming to camp not to be fed, but you're trying to position yourself with the right guy or the right girl, inappropriate fruit, no glory, no wine, no joy of the Lord. Sorry. Sorry to be so blunt. See, we, we try to grab things that are glorious for us, and we clutch them. But let me tell you what it looks like when you're clutching on to that boy or that girl, or that idea, or that notion of fame, or that bong, or that this, or that that. Let me show you what happens in the next verse. 
because it's exciting. It's exciting. Clutch that thing to your chest and watch what happens. 14, therefore, hell hath enlarged herself. See, talks about these people that have tried to find glory, but they're famished, and you're still hanging on to it. Watch what happens. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Imagine that vision. Hell's no longer this little dark place of some flames. No, it's a giant gaping mouth with stinking breath and sharp teeth and you're diving in, clutching those things that you thought, oh, these are glorious things on earth. Unusable fruit burned up with you. You need to understand something about this, this war hammer. See? Everyone that's caught up in Satan's work and his deceptions of glory has that war hammer. This point, see, he always aims for the belly, the lust of the body in the belly first, right up through the abdomen. Nice. Soft there. No bones in the way. Goes after you through your hungers, through your lusts through your illicit desires, through your hunger for self-satisfying glory, even if you cage it as glory for God. Then after a little while, he drives a little deeper. See, he wants to go up through the diaphragm, into the lungs, so after the satisfying things that you thought would satisfy don't satisfy, then all of a sudden you find yourself gasping a little bit because your lungs are perforated, and man, you know, this, this satisfying stuff's not working out so good. But then he comes by and he shoves it a little higher to get to your heart because he wants that heart to stop pumping. He wants that heart to turn cold and silent so you're unfeeling. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. After the lust, after the apprehension, comes the deadness, the lack of sensation. Can you relate? But the beauty is this. When you put yourself in a position, in the proximity of the Lord of hosts, the true glorious one, guess what happens? The Lord bends over you and starts to pull out that war hammer. Make no mistake. Go to your church on a Wednesday. Go to your church on a Sunday. That thing starts to get pulled out. You come to camp, there's no question. The Lord is working hard pulling out war hammers out of all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. You know what happened to William on his final day? As he breathed his last breath, he looked into the face of that young girl as she soothed his filthy, bloodied forehead with clean, cool water. And guess what happened? He finally got a glimpse of true glory. It wasn't of his own design wasn't of his own doing. 
wasn't something he fabricated and created. No, it was something that God wanted to show to him. And that's the thing you have to remember about glory. It's something that we all have a desire to seek. But God, in his sovereign will and his divine plan, he's the one that's going to reveal it to you. He's going to lay it on you. Not to give it as a gift for you, but for you just to see it. Say, look what glory is. It's me, Jesus, being magnified. That's glory. Not something you heap upon yourself. And sometimes you will see glory in your lives coming at the most darkest, sour moments. The moments of greatest despair. And that's the beauty about the glory of God. You don't necessarily know when it's coming. Hits you at camp sometimes. That's the beauty of the glory of the Lord. Verse 24. Therefore as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as the dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but, ha, there's a but. His hand is stretched out still. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you've seeked him out, no matter how much time and energy you've put into seeking glory of whatever kind, the Lord looks at a repentant heart, face up on the ground, war hammer impaled into your stomach. And the Lord says, you can be mine. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how badly you dismantled me in your life. My hand is stretched out for you today. Whatever it is that's happened, whatever bad relationship has soured you to life, Whatever, whatever you feel is distancing you from God, whether it's relationships or sin or anything that's, that's in the darkest corner of your mind, God says, I will pull out the war hammer that Satan impaled you with. That you welcomed. And I'll wash away your sin. Matthew 11 says, Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So I leave you with a dilemma. What would you rather have? What would you rather have? 
Would you rather have a Savior that says, it does not matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. And many of you in this room are like that vineyard. You've had the perfect opportunity your whole lives. Raised in the church, many of you, not all of you, perfect ground around you. The Lord said, I can plant in this little soul a beautiful vine with great grapes. And everything was put in the path for you. And maybe you haven't been raised in the church. Maybe you're here for the first time. The bottom line is, this ground here in Virginia is fertile. This ground is perfect. It's prepared. And you're laying on it. Bloodied. Damaged. Warhammer sticking out of your belly. And the Lord has spent all week working it out. Pulling it out. Heaving it out. And the, cho the choice you have to make, the dilemma is, would you rather have a Jesus that doesn't care what you've done, how heinous the crime, he's pulling it out, and he's making you ready for a life where God will reveal true glory to you. Or, or, you say, eh, not so sure. Not quite ready, Tom. It feels good to have that thing out. I've really enjoyed my time at camp, but, but eh, I'm not so sure. Well, here's the choice. A Savior that pulls out the war hammer and forgives everything. The bad news is this. If you say no, and you'd rather not have Jesus, the instant, the instant, you walk out of here or leave camp and say, I'm going to go back to that unprofitable fruit. You know what happens? Instantly, that dark rider shows up, comes up to you with a brand new war hammer, rusty and crusty or perhaps, doesn't matter, and he slings that thing, wham, right back up under the ribs because he loves that. And then what he does he pulls you close as you're shivering with that war ever, again impaled in the same old wound. And he pulls you close and he says this to you. He says, Welcome home. I own you. Doesn't that feel good? Chuckle. Doesn't that feel good? To have the sinister evil one breathe that into your ear. I own you. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end.
Let's bow to pray. Father, 186 souls saying to you this evening that they love you, that they want Jesus. Lord God, those voices raised to the floor of heaven. But we know there was a smell. As the sound went up, so did the smell of sin. And it was the sin that impaled us through the heart. And Lord, Your Son is standing there with His hand on the hammer and we fear there's going to be some that say, don't touch that. Leave it in. We pray that only by Your strength Your Son would look at us and that He would say, I'll take that sin. Impale me because my blood can wash you clean. And we pray that Your blood is strong enough for every soul. That they would turn to You and that You would remove the sin from their lives and Your Spirit would fill their hearts. And it's only possible by your son who died on the cross. His name do we pray. Amen.